Hi, this is Yvonne Heller from the Faculty of Psychology at the University of Akureyri. And this is your, our, Cognitive Neuroscience Podcast. Today I am making a podcast in order to respond to a question I got. It happens to me that people ask me about something they think I should know about because I'm a brain scientist. But honestly, I do not know everything about the brain. Doing research on the brain is so exciting because we know so little about it and because there is so much to learn about it that you can spend all your life learning and still will not understand half of it. So recently I was asked about psilocybin, not only once, uh, multiple times. And people just knew more about it than I did. So finally I decided, okay, let's dig into this. People suppose I know something about it. So what is this thing? Psilocybin is a chemical that makes you high and you can get it by eating some mushroom species. So what, why should a psychology professor who doesn't drink, even drink alcohol know about it? Well, there are some studies that suggest that psilocybin could be used as a pharmacological therapy, like a natural medicine, for various conditions. So what? For end-of-life anxiety, uh, not so many of us have that, but yeah. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, that's more interesting. And now we even think it's helpful in case you want to stop smoking. And for people with alcohol dependence, that sounds great, doesn't it? So the first thing that interested me about psilocybin is what chemical is it? You know probably that we have several neurotransmitter systems in our brain. You may have heard about dopamine and serotonin. Serotonin is known as the happy chemical and it is indeed such that psilocybin acts on the serotonin receptors. It is an agonist. That means it increases the effect of the serotonin that you already have in your brain. That sounds good in my ears because drugs like opiates that act on the dopamine system have a very high risk of addiction while that is not so bad with drugs that act on the serotonin system. So, that is already a positive thing about psilocybin. The interest in psilocybin is not completely new. Indigenous societies have used psychedelic compounds like psilocybin in sacramental contexts. After the discovery of LSD in 1943, there were more than 1000 scientific papers published on classic psychedelics involving about 40,000 patients. That sounds enormous, but as often, quantity is not what counts. We also need to consider the quality of those studies. And unfortunately, most studies do not meet the required standards, which are necessary to deem them to be trustworthy. So in other words, we cannot draw valid conclusions from these studies. Yeah, now you might ask, why? Do scientists just do bad studies? They should just do their job. They should do better studies in high quality such that we can finally get to know whether we can use psychedelics for therapy or not. Well, just like often, it is more difficult and more time consuming and a lot more expensive to do things properly. That's, that's the thing in science as well. 
So these studies that were published were often such that patients got the psychedelic and their symptoms were measured before and after. However, that way you cannot control for the placebo effect, for example. That is the effect you get when people get some sort of therapy and just by believing that it may help, they already feel better. So even if you give them a sugar pill, they will feel better. So now we could say the doctor gives some patients a placebo that is a fake medication and makes them believe it is the real medication. Then we can see whether those patients getting the fake pill get as much an effect as those getting the real pill. Unfortunately, this will not solve the problem as the placebo effect is not only related to the patient's belief, but even to the doctor's belief. Even if the patient does not know whether he gets a real medication or a fake, if the doctor knows, the doctor might behave differently towards the patient and that can also induce a placebo effect because a great part of the therapy is interacting with the doctor. That's interesting, but that's a full other bunch of podcasts if we start talking about that. So, however, what we really need is a placebo-controlled double-blind study. In such a study, the physician gives patients a pill and neither the patient nor the physician will know whether it is a real medication or a fake. You can imagine that it is quite expensive to make pills that look exactly as the real pills. The packaging and everything, so ugh. And then you need, of course, some system by which the packages the patients get are numbered and somewhere there is a label for each number that will be accessed only after completion of the study in order to find out who got the real medication and who the placebo. And since psychedelics like psilocybin do not need to be developed and produced by big pharma companies, we would need some public funding for those studies. Because eating mushrooms to get high is part of, let's say, a specific lifestyle. <laughs> the research on psychedelics did not get a lot of funding from governments because, yeah, that didn't look so good for the politicians. However, some recent studies found some evidence for specific conditions and the results sound promising. So the thing I found most impressive when I started reading about it is that one of these studies was published in The Lancet. Uh, in case you do not know what that is, I can tell you it is one of the best journals in the medical sciences. For a medical scientist, publishing an article in The Lancet is like winning the Olympics for an athlete or winning a Grammy Award for a musician or an Oscar for a person in the film industry. So it's a real big thing. And if you ask yourself now, has she? I have to say, nope, nope, nope. I have no publication in the Lancet or whatsoever, sorry. We measure the, so maybe, coolness of journals by their impact factor. That's basically how many other scientists read and wrote about an article. So talking about whether that is good or bad would fill another couple of podcasts again. But let me state, I'm publishing in journals with impact factors around three. So that's pretty average. While the Lancet Psychiatry, where this psilocybin article appeared, has an impact factor of 16. So that's really high. 
Okay, so there must be something about psilocybin that impressed the editor of the journal. The study by Carhart Harris and his team appeared in 2016 and it was not double blind and placebo controlled. It was an open label feasibility study. So the doctor and the patients knew that the patients got this mushroom stuff. And feasibility just meant, oh, let's see whether it works and whether the patients uh, have side effects and so on. Only 12 patients with treatment-resistant major depression participated and they received only two oral doses of psilocybin seven days apart. So, oh wow, how could they publish such a small study with no placebo, etc. in The Lancet? So, at least I ask me this. Maybe you don't, but I really ask myself, how could they do? So, I, I really, I was very curious about this study. And I think now I see what the editors of the journal liked so much about this study. So, first, people with treatment-resistant depression have tried in a clinical sense, everything to get rid of their problem and nothing has helped them. So why should they respond to placebo? In that sense, I see that this is maybe a minor issue of this study, just in this specific setting with these patients. And second, the patients got two oral doses, seven days apart. This is nothing compared to a therapy with classical antidepressants that you have to take daily over six weeks until you feel a difference. Yes, that is indeed the case. With SSRIs, that is serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, you have to take your medication for six weeks until feeling better. However, these treatment resistant patients did not respond to these SSRIs. So the striking thing about the study is that they responded a single oral dose of this special mushroom ingredient. Okay, the dose was quite high, so they responded to the high dose, which was 25 milligrams. But still, this single dose had a remarkable effect of relieving symptoms even three months after this intervention. So, I think that sounds very convincing. The study also found some side effects. All patients experienced some anxiety during onset of the drug effect. Almost all of them felt confusion. Okay, that's to be expected, I would say. One third of them was nauseous and another third, maybe overlapping, had headaches. But that is quite okay, given that they improved on their depression on a long term. So instead of digging out more articles that demonstrate more or less reliably whether psilocybin is a valid approach to solve all kinds of problems, we should be interested in why it could be so effective. The same group, Carhart Harris and his team, published an fMRI study in 2017, so a year later, this time in a less impressive journal, it is called Scientific Reports, belongs to Nature Group, but still it's not that impressive. Okay, however, they measured where in the brain oxygen it used, so whether this, so they measured where in the brain oxygen is used Oxygen, you know the stuff that you breathe, when the patients did nothing. So they were just lying in the magnetic resonance imaging machine and did some mind wandering. The idea about this measuring 
where in the brain the oxygen is used is that the blood will bring more oxygen to the brain regions that are most active because an active neuron needs oxygen. The authors of this study measured the so-called resting state activity before and after these 19 patients with treatment-resistant depression got treated with psilocybin. I guess part of this sample was also in the other publication that they came up with a year earlier, but however, in this study, all patients showed treatment response at one week after treatment and almost half of them after five weeks. So the effect was a little bit less impressive, but yeah. Okay, but what brain regions responded? So the authors examined the network in the brain that is most active when we rest, so when we do nothing. And this is the so-called default mode network. They found that indeed this network was more active after treatment. We could ask now, since this network is responsible for filling in when we do nothing, whether these patients just needed more of the nothing. But the clue here is surely which type of nothing they would need. There is a wide range of research on this default mode network and all kinds of mental function. So again, that would feel at least another podcast. Yeah. I would like to conclude that it is very interesting to see what research is being done on psilocybin and that it is too early to give it to all of our patients. We do also need replications of those studies by independent laboratories. It's not good if only one expert group in the world focuses on something. Often careers of researchers are intertwined with the topic the researcher is focusing on. And if it turns out that the topic is not a valid one, the career is also at a premature end. And that can lead to biased results, obviously. So we need to watch out for further studies. I'm not saying that only one research group in the world is doing research on psilocybin, but it's not that many. However, the results sound promising, so stay tuned. And now you might ask yourself, why do I pronounce it one psilocybin and one psilocybin? I I heard both versions and I, I found out both should be okay. But if you find the ground truth here, <laughs> please let me know. So that's for that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it and I am looking forward to more of your topic suggestions. I really like that. So just write me a mail to Yvonne at unak.is. Unak, that's our university. Bye!